right, church family, you ready to enjoy the word together? Part of our worship of our great and awesome God this morning. If you wouldn't mind, would you take the Bible that you brought with you today, or maybe you use your iPad or your phone, and let's turn to the epistle of First uh, John, and we're going to be stepping into chapter 2 this morning. If you need a Bible, please raise your hand. We can share a copy of God's word with you. And, and I would just ask as a favor, if you wouldn't mind silencing that cell phone, if you haven't done that already. There is a note page in your bulletin. That will be helpful this morning, so I'd ask you to retrieve that as well. Real Christians in an Unreal World. Now, that's the title that we have given to a study series that we recently stepped into, which has us sharing verse by verse this New Testament uh, epistle of 1 John. 1 John is essentially a handbook that the Holy Spirit has given to the church so that anyone can consult it and know how to distinguish a real Christian, a real lover and follower of the Lord Jesus from those who are not real, those who are fake followers. And in the first century world that John lived in, false teachers and fake followers of Jesus were infiltrating Jesus' church. It was getting difficult at times to distinguish the real from the unreal. And so over the course of five chapters, John presents numerous proofs or tests or ways to tell the fake from the real. Distill John's epistle down to its core, and he will say that you can tell the real Christian from the fake by what they believe, by how they behave, and by how they love. Those three, those three ways. Over and over he will say in this letter that real Christians believe certain things. And they live a certain way. And they love with an unmistakable authenticity. And so we can apply those tests and, and apply those tests to the life of our church, to our own individual lives. In verse 5 of chapter 1, John writes these words, and this is ground that we've been over just a little bit as a refresher, a kind of way to, to set up those who haven't been with us maybe up to this point. John writes in verse 5, this is the message we have heard from him, that is from Jesus, and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. We just sang about that, didn't we? The blood of Jesus. Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, though, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Phony Christians, fake Christians, and false teachers were saying, hey, great news, everybody. You can be in fellowship with God, in relationship with God and Jesus, and pretty much live any way you want. You can just do that. In fact, you can even reach a place of spiritual perfection so that you don't sin anymore. How would you like that? If it was true, right? If it was true. John says, no way. In these verses, God is light. He is moral perfection to claim to be a real Christian, but to live an ongoing life of deliberate sinful practice. That's absurd, John would say. To claim to be no longer sinning is even more absurd. 
and it's a deadly deception. God says we are sinners and we sin. And when we deny that, John says you actually make God out to be a liar. Very serious. Real Christians don't dismiss sin. They they don't deny it. They don't defend it. Rather, they confess it. Verse 9. They confess the sin in their lives. Confession of sin is a lifelong feature of a real Christian's life. We talked about this last time. The work, the merits of Jesus' cross, his death, his resurrection, they are continually cleansing us from the penalty, the guilt, the alienation that the presence of sin in our lives produces. By continually cleansing us and purifying us, God keeps us in his light and in fellowship with him, and we praise him for this, don't we? Church family, don't we praise him for this? We love him because he does this for us. But John is ever alert. He's ever perceptive. He's, a, he's got a great pastoral instinct. He knows how this truth about confession of sin and forgiveness has to be delicately balanced and could easily be abused. He knows how easy it would be for someone to, to take God's grace and twist the forgiveness of God through Jesus and use it almost like a permission slip to sin and to presume upon God's grace. I'll never forget a painful conversation I had with a man in my office one day. He comes and he tells me that he must commit a very serious sin. He presents the reasons why, well thought out in his mind and fully justified. And I pleaded with him, I, but, but this is sin. This is sin by your own admission. It is sin. God will forgive me. God will forgive me. That was his repeated, his only defense. God will forgive me. Oh, fellow Christian, is God's promise of forgiveness of sin upon our genuine repentance and regret over it? Is that ever a Christian's permission slip to sin? Oh, no, no. Ten thousand times no. This is all ground that we've been over. If we love the Lord Jesus, we want to be in the light, right? That's where we want to be. Today, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. John begins in verse 1. He says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. That's the goal. That is the goal. That's our desire. That's the longing of our heart to bring glory and honor to the great God who saved us by desiring not to sin against them. Real Christians, as a defining feature of their lives, do not want to sin. Is that true of you this morning? Is that the desire of your heart? Turning to the imagery of a courtroom, John writes, but if anyone does sin, oh, and aren't we glad for that little line? Because that's us. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. We have a defender with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now these two verses will occupy the rest of our time together. And I'm really excited about being able to share them together. Because they are the perfect prelude to coming here together as a church family to this table of remembrance. I can't think of a more perfect passage to help our hearts get ready for this time around the Lord's table. 
Let's pray together real quick and give our time to the Lord. And Father, we're about to step into new ground. Your spirit has given us your heart here on the printed page. And, and there's so much packed into these two little verses. I would ask you, Holy Spirit, to mine the riches of them for us this morning. And I would just plead with you, Heavenly Father, to take me out of the way. Get me out of the way so that your people see you. They hear you. They understand what you're trying to say to them today. Because I believe with all my heart that the people who are here want to be the real deal. They're not playing games with you. They're not trying to be a phony Christian. They want to be real. And this is part of how we do that. We learn more about what it means to be real. So take your word. Bring it to life. For your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, many people in contemporary American culture are hooked on courtroom dramas. In fact, they have become a reliable staple of daytime television. Are you aware of this? If you're not, that's a great thought that you're not aware. There are cable and satellite channels that broadcast nothing, nothing but trials and courtroom activity all day, every day, revealing just how powerfully attractive this kind of programming is. I was curious enough. I went on the Internet. I Googled current courtroom TV shows. That's what I Googled. I was blown away. Here's a sampling of some of the shows that are currently running right now on cable. And, and, and the names themselves are entertaining. Uh, the Blame Game, Court of Current Issues, Crime and Punishment, Day Court, Due Process, Family Court, Guilty or Not Guilty, Hot Bench, Judge for yourself, and then no less than 14 Judge Somebody TV shows. The most famous, of course, is Judge Judy, right? Judge Wapner's Animal Court, for all the animal lovers. Justice for All, Kids Court. Now, I can't imagine what that is, but it's there. Last Shot with Judge Gunn. Very creative title. The People's Court, The Verdict is Yours, We the People, and there are more, more and more. How strange. This seems strange to me. Tens of thousands of people every day held spellbound by courtroom drama. The judicial system looked to as a source of entertainment. Bizarre theater. Catering to the appetites of a a confused culture, right? That's what you'd have to say. If you are a courtroom TV show fan, I apologize. <laughs> nah. Maybe, maybe not. <laughs> oh, brothers and sisters in Jesus, infinitely transcending this scene in our culture is a cosmic courtroom drama that dwarfs all earthly trials in scale and in scope. Any person can easily pass on all of these earthly courtroom TV shows and they will be no better or worse off for having missed them. But no one, and I, I, I mean no one, can afford not to know about what has and is taking place right now in the high court of heaven. 
In this courtroom that John tells us about in verses 1 and 2, God the Father is the judge. He is the holy, 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 sinless, perfectly perfect, righteous one. The one that the Holy Spirit already told us in verse 5 of chapter 1 is light, and in him there is no darkness at all, right? He's the perfect judge. Perfect perfection, brilliant white light sinlessness, and he sits at the bench in heaven. Satan is the accuser in this highest of all courts. Revelation 12.10 will say this. He is the accuser of our brothers who accuses them day and night before our God. What is Satan doing right now? Well, if you are in Jesus Christ, he's bringing you before the court. He's bringing you before the bench and accusing you. Of all the reasons why you shouldn't be part of the kingdom of heaven. Making us the accused, right? We're the accused in this great courtroom of heaven. Every person who has ever lived on the earth, with the exception of the Lord Jesus, is on trial. We're the accused. All of us who have ever sinned, even if that was just one time. And of course, it's not one time. But even if it were, we are the defendants who are on trial in this heavenly courtroom. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, the sinless perfection of God. We've all fallen short of that, says Romans 3.23. All those standing before heaven's bench are guilty of violating God's holy law. Romans 3.10 announces that there is none righteous, not even one. James writes, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of what? Breaking it all in the eyes of the judge. And so the just sentence of this heavenly court should be an eternal separation from a holy God. Because Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is what? It's death. It's separation. But coming to the aid of the accused is the counsel for the defense. None other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. We have an advocate. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Heavenly Father. We have an advocate with the judge. Jesus Christ, the righteous. And more on him in just a moment. But the matter before the bench is very clear. How can any sinner, how can you, how can I stand before a holy God and be pronounced not guilty, justified, given the place, given a place with God in his heaven forever since it has already been established that we are guilty? How can that happen? How can that happen in your life or my life? If it can happen, has it happened to you? Has it happened to me? What's your answer? It has happened. We are living proof that it has happened. John says, my little children. Now, if you've been reading 1 John, which was a a homework assignment that we gave you in week one to, to, if you could, take the time to read 1 John every day. Um, just to familiarize yourself with it. If you've been keeping up that practice, then you know that this expression, my little children, is a favorite expression of John's. He'll, He'll use it six more times in this epistle. My little children. Now, do you think John, by using this expression, is trying to elevate himself above his readers? You think he's trying to to put himself up there and and somehow uh, help them to remember, hey, don't forget who I am? 
No, no. You know, what if I called you my little children? How would you feel about that? Many of you, most of you, all of you would not like that, right? If I called you my little children. And I get it. I totally get that. But for John, this is, this is, this is appropriate. This is right. This is affectionate language from the aged apostle of love. He's now in his 80s. He's a pastor over the church in Ephesus and all the churches in the region. He writes to Christians out of his love uh, like a spiritual father, writing to uh, these Christians who he sees as his spiritual children. And he does not want them to get sucked into those fake false teachers and their, and, and their, their misguided doctrines. And so rather than talking down to them, he's actually affirming them. He's lifting them up. My little children whom I love. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. The desire of a real Christian, as we just considered a moment ago, is not to abuse God's grace. We want to run into the light, right? That's our heart. Romans 6, verses 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By what? By no means. Absolutely not, Paul would say. How can we who died to sin still live in it or want to live in it? Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. Is that our heart? Church family, is that our heart? I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Now, if we just stopped right there, we'd kind of be in a bad way and we would leave with some really heavy hearts, I think. Because we all know very well our own ongoing personal battle with daily sin, even though we are in Jesus by saving faith. Yes, we all continue to war with sin. Not sinning doesn't seem like a very realistic option. What do we do? Well, John would say, hey, it's not about what we do. It's about what Jesus has already done and is still doing. That's what really matters. And that brings us then to that place on your note page there in the middle that says, my divine defense attorney. Do you see that? They we're right there. You were all together. Verse one, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin a moment ago, I said, oh, thank you for that little phrase. Though we really don't catch it in our English translations, the, the verb that John uses in his second use of the word sin here in verse one is in a form. It, it's in a tense that means if anyone sins and they will. That's how you want to read that. If anyone sins, and they will. Now, he just said in the first part of the verse that our goal and our desire is to live in the not sinning light of God's truth. But he knows we can't do that. None of us can do that. Not all the time. It's not going to happen. We wish that it could, but we have that old sin nature that doesn't want to die. But if anyone sins, and they will, 
We have an advocate with the Father, and his name is Jesus. The word advocate is actually where all of this imagery of the courtroom, the judge, the accuser, the accused, the counsel for the defense, all these terms that I've been using, they all come out of this this word advocate. The Greek word John uses here is one of those uh, fairly well-known Greek words. If you've traveled in church circles very much, you've, you've heard this word. Um, if, this, if, if, if you're fairly new to the Christian faith, it may be a brand new word for you, but it's a word that you'd want to know. It's the Greek word paraclete. You ever heard the word? Sure, you've heard this word, many of you. On your note page, it comes uh, from combining two Greek words together, para, which means to come alongside, and kletos, meaning to help or to encourage. And so the paraclete or the advocate is one who comes alongside to help. That's, that's the large picture idea. It's also used for one who intercedes on behalf of another person when, it, when, when it's used in a legal context, as John is doing here. The paraclete becomes the counsel for the defense who comes to the aid of his client. In our case, he comes to the aid of the sinner. So this was a word that you'd find in the courtroom of John's day. If this word paraclete sounds familiar to you, it might be because it's the exact same word that John uses in his gospel when he tells us about Jesus promising us who? The Holy Spirit. Right On the night before the cross, Jesus says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I will send you the paraclete. I will send you the Holy Spirit. John chapter 14, John 16. Jesus says, I will not leave you alone. The paraclete will come. He will help you. He will encourage you. He will comfort and he will guide you. He comes to live inside of us, doesn't he? The very moment that we confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, comes to live inside of us so that we have one who will enable us to be able to live the life of the Lord that we want to live. The Holy Spirit is our advocate, but John is saying here that Jesus is our advocate. And you and I could not have a more perfect defense counselor to represent us in the high court of heaven than the Lord Jesus Jesus will say this about himself in John chapter 10, verse 31. The Father and I are one. If we put that in modern language, we would say the Father and I are on the same page. We are united in every way. That means that the heavenly judge over us is the Father of our Defender. Our defense counsel, the two of them are always going to be in perfect agreement. They're going to always be one, fully united in all that they do. We couldn't hope for more, could we? In the court of heaven than to have the son representing us to his father and the two being one. I love that position. And yet we get more than that because our defense counselor, Jesus, being not only fully God, but fully human, can completely understand our ongoing struggle with sin. Right. He, he understands that he gets that he knows the war that wa- that rages within us because he lived that too. Hebrews chapter four, verse 15, for we do not have a high priest referring to Jesus who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, 
yet without sin. So who better to represent us than one who lived the battle and lived the battle so successfully that he never gave in once to sin? Who better than Jesus to represent us in the court of heaven? And then as well, Jesus has to be the most unusual defense attorney of all time because he never tries to maintain his client's innocence. Do you notice that? He's not going to do that. As a matter of fact, he fully acknowledges that all of his clients are what? (laughs) Guilty. Guilty. What kind of a defender does that? Only the perfect defender would do that. He accepts his clients, only those who confess their guilt, who confess their sinful condition, their desperate need to receive forgiveness through him as Savior and Lord. That's 1 John 1, 9, isn't it? Confessing our sin. And when they do that, he becomes for them the incomparable defender who always gains acquittal. He always gains pardon for those who trust him as their defender. Wow, we've got the perfect advocate, don't we? Perfect in every way. The Apostle Paul in Romans 8 borrows this same courtroom imagery and here's what he says, verses 33-34. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. He's the judge. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is, what are the last three words? Interceding for us. What does that mean? That means he's our defender, right? He's our advocate. He is fighting for us in the court of heaven when we are accused. And we're guilty. But he fights for us. The Holy Spirit is telling us through Paul's pen that Jesus intercedes for us. He advocates for us before the holy bench. He comes before his Father on the basis of his own death and in the place of the sinner, which fully and forever pays sin's death penalty for us. God's holy justice is satisfied. His his, his just nature is preserved. He didn't just look the other way with our sin. He He didn't ignore it. That would be impossible for him in his character. He can't do that. He's holy. The sin debt is paid for us in full by Jesus' death and resurrection. And on the basis of that great glorious act by Jesus in our place, God can lavish his grace on us forgive our sin, and grant us an eternal pardon. That's the work of the advocate. That's the work of the Lord Jesus. Has he done that work for you? Has he done that work for you, church? If you flip your note page over, Jesus is fully qualified to represent us before God. Is he not? Why is he fully qualified? Because he is Jesus Christ, the righteous, the righteous. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, a moment ago, we read in Hebrews 4.15, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet what? Without sin. Another word for that is righteous. There's only one person who has ever been without sin, a truly righteous one, and his name is Jesus. 
Only a sinless defender can rightly represent the sinner before a holy judge. So thank you, Lord Jesus. You're the righteous defender. Now remember again who's writing these words. John. Now John is not just some observer of Jesus from afar. I mean, this is... This is one of the disciples. He's one of the guys who lived with Jesus. He was part of the inner circle. He ate with Jesus and he saw Jesus in the day-to-day of life for more than three years. He would get up with him in the morning. And he would, he would see him when he was tired. And he would see Jesus most notably at times when Jesus was in great distress. John was there in the Garden of Gethsemane. He saw Jesus with his own eyes, overwhelmed with emotion. He saw Jesus arrested, sent to Caiaphas' house for interrogation. Peter snapped under the weight of all of that, but not Jesus. John saw Jesus beaten, flogged, saw him even standing there as he hung on the cross. John saw him there. If there was ever a place for a bad attitude or, or, or anger, some other sin to be expressed, it would be when Jesus was hanging naked in, in total exhaustion and pain for crimes he did not commit. John was right there. And yet in spite of this close-up perspective, John describes Jesus as the righteous one, morally perfect. No doubt John came to realize more about the person of Jesus after the resurrection, the true nature of Jesus as the man who is God. But still, it's remarkable that a true insider would say, I never saw in Jesus anything less than perfect righteousness to the law and to the will of God. But that is who Jesus is. He is sinless righteousness. And John makes sure we, we know that. The Apostle Peter, another insider, will write this about Jesus. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Peter lived with Jesus. And this is his summary. And my life verse, if I have a life verse, it's 2 Corinthians 5.21. Great verse to memorize, by the way, if you haven't. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus is fully qualified to stand before the judge of all the earth and defend us because he is the righteous one, the only righteous one who could do that for us. And so we say thank you, Heavenly Father, that we have an advocate, a perfect defender who can righteously represent us before you. We say thank you. But John's not done. As in verse 2, he says of our defender advocate, he is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Propitiation. Propitiation. Boy, you talk about a big, hairy theological word. Propitiation. They don't come much bigger. They don't come much hairier than this word. Propitiation. Can we say it together, church? Let's say it one time. Let's practice it. 
propitiation. Now, the ESV translation that we're using here this morning uses this word propitiation. Other translations, and you may be carrying one of them this morning, tries to explain the word rather than use the word. Some versions say Jesus is the atoning sacrifice or he is the sacrifice that atones. I am glad that we're using the actual word because, church, we need to be able to appreciate big, hairy theological words. I want to be part of a church that's not afraid of big, hairy theological words. He is the propitiation for our sins. And everybody says, great, but what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, propitiation is a word that has been around for a very long time. It was born in the context of things religious, and it's lived its whole existence in that context. Though it's quite an uncommon word for us today, that was not always the case. It was a rather well-known, well-understood word at one time. On your note page, it refers to an offering made to appease or satisfy or turn away the wrath of God towards sin and the sinner and replace his wrath with favor. Now, that's a rather long definition. But this is how John is using this word. For centuries before John's time, propitiation described an offering that a pagan worshiper would bring to to his or her God, God with a small g, in order to hopefully turn away the wrath of their God and induce their God to pour out kindness. You would bring an offering to turn away the anger of your God and cause your God to do good stuff for you. The offering was the propitiation. The gods of the ancient Greeks and the the Romans, they were a fickle and unpredictable bunch. The ancients would would do all manner of things to try to manipulate the gods with a small g. The goal was to avoid their wrath, gain their favor, so that he he would cause their crops to grow, protect them from their enemies, give them healthy livestock, increase the number of children. And so they would bring these offerings And you could never know what mood your God was going to be in when you brought your offering. Is Zeus angry today? I hope not. But I'm going to bring my offering and try to win his favor. Has Athena, is she going to pour her favor out on me tomorrow? I don't know, but I'm going to give her this offering. You hoped that the offering would be good enough that you gave. Of course, these gods were not true gods at all. But the word propitiation comes out of this context. Now, here is where folks in our day can get very uncomfortable with this word because they say that the God of the Bible is not a God of wrath, but a God of love. You ever heard that? Oh, he's a God of love, not wrath. That's not our God. Propitiation cannot mean an offering that turns away the wrath of God from the sinner because God doesn't have wrath. Church family, listen very carefully. Here is where the word and its definition are so important and, and, and why one commentator is bold enough to say, if we get this wrong, nothing else is right. The love of God does not negate or contradict the wrath of God. 
Paul begins his entire explanation of the gospel of salvation truth in the book of Romans. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. That's the book of Romans. Paul begins that entire book with not the love of God, but the wrath of God. Romans 1.18, the wrath of God, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. They suppress the truth about God. And what does God do? He expresses his wrath. God's wrath is, is not so much an emotion as it is a holy stance or a holy position that he takes, a holy opposition, a hostility, not just towards sin, but toward the one who commits the sin. Look again at verse 18. God's wrath is directed at people who by their sin defy his truth. God doesn't consign sin to hell. He consigns sinners, right? His wrath is directed at the sinner who ignores Jesus. God's love for sinners, we've got to say it, begins with his commitment to his glory. Commitment to his own nature and character as a holy, holy, holy God who hates darkness. To really understand propitiation, we have to have a biblical fear of the wrath of God against sin and against those who commit it. If we don't, we really don't understand sin very well, brothers and sisters. We really don't understand God very well. If God holds a holy wrath against sin and we have all sinned, what do we obviously need? We need somehow for that wrath to be turned away. Right? That's what we need. We need that wrath to be turned away and we need favor. That it is even a possibility is extraordinary beyond all measure. How do we comprehend it? Well, John says he is the propitiation for our sins. He. Who's he? Jesus. Jesus is the propitiation. He's the offering that turns God's wrath into favor towards us. How do we know that? Well, from passages like these. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that... He might, what, bring us to God. He's the offering that brings us to God. Or how about Romans 3.25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. And 1 John 4.10, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the, propitiation for our sins. Jesus' death in our place as our substitute was the satisfying offering to God that turned away his wrath and brought us his favor. Jesus is our propitiation. And brothers and sisters, here's where the one true God is so different from all those other gods through the centuries, through the millennia, all those gods with a small g that, that, that man makes for himself. Those gods are fickle. They're unpredictable. There's no way to know uh, if, if the offering is enough. But here's the truth. 
We don't make the offering that turns away God's wrath. We don't do that. You don't do that. I don't do that. God himself makes the offering that turns away his own wrath. Here is the glory and wonder of the gospel and the cross. The one who, the, the, the one who died for us was given to us by the God who hates sin and, to, and who was offended. The one who we by our sin wounded and hurt in an infinitely great personal way is himself the one who offers the sacrifice that turns his wrath into favor. Are you catching this with me? The significance of this? God's, God propitiates his own wrath. We don't do anything but believe what God has done. When does the, hor- the horrifically offended a person personally provide the way for his hurt to be removed? Who does that? Only God would do that. And that's what makes the sacrifice of our, descender, our defender so utterly incredible. 2 Timothy 1.9 God has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. Wow. He really is our propitiation. God releases his love, lavishes his love on us, not because of anything that we've done, not because of any offering we have brought, but because of everything that Jesus has done and everything that he brings We will never fully appreciate the love of God for us until we comprehend in some measure the wrath of God that was poured out on Jesus, our advocate. You agree? Again, 410 of 1 John, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And not just for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. That's the last part of verse 2. Sadly, this last phrase has been seized upon by many and turned into a dangerous false doctrine, the doctrine of unlimited atonement and universal salvation for all. There are people who want to take that, that phrase and turn it into that, but it is no such thing. To make it that would be to tear the heart of faith out of biblical Christianity, Right? It is by grace you have been saved through faith in the Lord Jesus. Universal salvation that has no place in biblical Christianity. Without faith, it is impossible to do what? To please God. Without faith in Jesus. If we're going to be true to the whole of Scripture, then the whole world here in verse 2 must be understood as referring to sinful human beings who are spread throughout the whole earth. God directs His saving love, provides propitiation, across all borders, boundaries, nationalities, language, and people. Jesus is for the world that is filled with sinners, though not all of the world will want him to be their Savior, right? Yeah. For everyone who will believe in simple faith that Jesus alone is their divine attorney, their fully qualified, righteous advocate, their perfect propitiation, 
they can know with full conviction that in the court of heaven, they have been pronounced justified, forgiven, not guilty, made righteous before the holy judge. Real Christians, says the Holy Spirit through, Paul, through John's pen, believe these Brother, sister, do you believe these things? This truth is what we are about to celebrate as we come to the table. All that we've shared meets us here at the communion table. Would you bow your head with me as we prepare our hearts for that? Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, I I stand before you and I'm just... I just feel wrung out as, as we talked about these incredibly important, eternally significant truths. This is not baby food this morning. This is, this is, this is meat. It calls for us to work. And, and yet, Holy Spirit, you have given these words to us and this truth to us. And oh, how we thank you that we will never have to fear stepping into the courtroom of heaven. Because Jesus, you have become our propitiation and our advocate. You represent us before the Father. You have turned his wrath away from us and lavished your favor upon us. Not because of anything we have done, but because of everything you have done. It is a joy for us to come to your table, Lord Jesus, at your command now. And remember, that's what you asked us to do, to never forget what it costs for us to be pronounced not guilty before the God of heaven. May this time bring you great pleasure. May our hearts overflow with joy as we share. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. If I could ask those who will help to serve you, if they would come forward at this time. And as they come and they share the elements with you, they'll pass the trays. And if you'll take the bread and the cup in hand and then just hold them. Uh, guys, go ahead. Um, and then just hold the bread and the cup. We're going to partake together. If you know the Lord Jesus this morning, my friend, this table belongs to you. If you do, Go ahead, guys. If you, if you are still not sure who Jesus is in your life, then, then let the cup and tray pass until you are sure of who Jesus is in your life. And if we can help you in that part of the journey, we'd be delighted to do that. This table belongs to you who know the Lord Jesus, who know that Jesus is your advocate and your propitiation. Let's share that together in a moment after everyone has been served. After you have received the elements, perhaps, or before, just draw before your Heavenly Father now. Imagine yourself in the court of heaven, Jesus as your advocate. Talk to Jesus and thank him for what he has done for you. Let's pray.
on the night before the cross, as Jesus would gather with his disciples in a rented room, and knowing full well that within hours he would be hanging between heaven and earth, he took up the bread that was on the table as they shared a meal together, and he blessed the bread, and he he said to his followers, he said, this is going to be a, a memorial, a way for you to remember my body, which will bear the blow of God's wrath for you. Jesus took the bread and he blessed it. And we might say, quoting from 1 John 2.1, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus said, this do in remembrance of me. Jesus took the cup that was also on the table. He blessed it. He passed it amongst his disciples and said, this will be a memorial for you as well, a way for you to remember my blood poured out as the atoning sacrifice for your sin. Jesus said, this is the new covenant, the new rule of life in me. He could have said, but if anyone sins, we have an advocate, and his name is Jesus. Do this in remembrance of me, he said. What do we say? What do we say to you, our God, our Savior, our King? What do we say but thank you, thank you, thank you again? And the best way for us to say thank you is not with our lips, but with our lives. Being the real deal in a world that doesn't know you yet. May it be so for all who have partaken today in this table. We love you, Lord. We truly do love you, but only because you loved us first. And all God's people said, Amen and Amen.